So this week, we have another question. These scriptures that are the word of God, breathed out by God himself, the logos, the very exhale of God, what do the scriptures teach? A lot of people are teaching right now. Whether you know it or not, when you turn on Instagram, you turn on TikTok, you go to the news section in your email, when Facebook or whatever brand that you have is advertising, they are teaching something. When you turn on the TV and you see a Nike commercial or you see a Honda commercial, they're not just advertising something. They're actually teaching something. A lot of those brands actually knock at our insecurities to say, hey, you're doing something wrong or you believe something wrong. If you believe this or if you do this, your life will be better. Every brand does it. That's just how us as human beings think. There's got to be something to be taught. There's has to be something to believe, be, be, be believed, and there has to be something that must be done. So, this Bible, what does it primarily teach? It teaches a lot of things. A lot of things are in this Bible. Depending on the kind of version and the font you got, you can get pretty thick. But when you open this, what is its primary directive? Well, the scriptures primarily teach what humans are to, one, believe about God, and two, what duties God requires of human beings. Anytime you open up the scriptures, it's making a claim on reality that asks you to believe something. And because of that belief, something needs to be done. Genesis 1 verses 1. Everyone knows it. God created the heavens and the earth. Pause. That was a claim on reality. And two... It was saying there's something to be believed. God created the heavens and the earth. There's a lot of things in this Bible that we can run to to kind of prove this. But I think there was a a scripture that I don't think I've really heard talked about a lot that I think I want to sit on and talk through this first portion of what is the scriptures trying to teach about God? There's a lot of opinions about God, though. I think when we live through life and we experience certain things, we come to our own conclusions and that's normal. 
But as we understand as believers, if you're going to believe something, it has to be founded on something. Everybody tracking? You can't just believe something. You can't believe something and there's no concrete foundation to say that that is true. So, to start off, if you have your scriptures, Exodus 34. In this scripture, we're actually looking at the second time God is revealing himself to Moses because of the debacle on the mountain where he, he had literally smashed both tablets that God himself wrote on because of the disobedience of Israel. And I think what's interesting is in Exodus 34, we're going to walk through God's self-revelation about what he says he is. So Exodus 34 Oh, yeah, it's true. Makes sense, right? Yeah, we should turn on the lights. Ah, Thank you so much, Phil. Um, Let's do. Let's go. Verse six. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God compassionate and slow, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transge- transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Heavenly Father, as we comb through this Bible, I pray that in your sovereign will, you would be here with us in a tangible way by the evidence of clearing our minds And letting the scripture speak to us. That we don't infer our own thoughts, our own biases on your holy word. I pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. First thing God says. Compassionate and gracious. How many people would consider themselves compassionate people? I think many people would on a general basis. At least people would like to think that they are compassionate. That they're compassionate, gracious people. But I think sometimes as human beings, as when we go through the scriptures, we see how when God says that he is something... And it's a characteristic that us as human beings might subscribe to. We quickly find that there is limits to what we say we are like God. Let's put it this way. When God says he's compassionate and gracious. It is at a certain degree. Being compassionate and gracious for an omnipotent, unlimited being 
To say that these things are who he is, he's actually saying that's part of his characteristic. Now, God cannot be divided into parts. God is an unlimited whole. So when he says he's compassionate and gracious, he's not saying a part of me is compassion and a part of me is gracious. He says the whole me, unlimited, timeless, immaterial, me is compassionate and gracious. Now, when God says compassionate and gracious, I think sometimes we might have this Victorian uh, thing in our heads that someone like this king is compassionate and gracious. And there's a, a walk of grace about that person. But here in the scriptures, God is actually talking about he's a person that hears the cry of a person in need. Or more, in a deeper sense, a person that is actually in debt. Somebody that knows that they are lacking and they cannot get out of the situation that they're in. So they cry the infamous words, help. That is the voice God hears. I I think... For us, we have a hard time saying help. Especially being in this westernized society, man, like being independent and strong and self-reliant is such a good trait. But also a bad side of that is some of us just don't know when to say help. In the scriptures, it's so clear that so many times that There's works that we try to do to get towards God or to get towards being holy. And the scriptures continually cut our knees off and say there's actually nothing that you can do. Or the amount that you think is good enough is actually nowhere near the level where God needs, which is perfect. That word, that scary word, help, is not just a word of, I'm insignificant, so I need help. It's actually the word of the courageous person that's willing to be humble. Help. I can't do it. What's in front of me, I can't do. That's actually the voice that God is listening for. Amen. Let's, let's go to Second Chronicles. I know it's not a popular book in the Bible. I never heard someone say they're just reading through Chronicles, but I think there's something cool there that we can talk through. Second Chronicles 30. Let's go to verse 9. It says, For if you return to the Lord, 
your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. Humility. Another thing, a trait of someone that is humble is they're willing to admit that they're wrong. I'm sure if you talk to my wife and me long enough, you'll kind of get to know I'm a person that enjoys being right. <laughs> I enjoy being right. I'm willing to do research. And it's, it's, it's one of my best worst traits, I would say. I want to be right. And I'm learning that part of truly being right is the willingness to be humble enough to look for the right information. But I think in a lot of times, us as human beings, we enjoy being right, but we're not humble enough to be willing to be wrong, to find out how we can be right. Now, I, I also think on the other side is looking at that being compassionate and gracious, maybe some of us sometimes, we actually don't like those traits. How many of you know people that are sticklers for justice? They should get what they deserve. This word compassionate and gracious is this word that I think we say about God and I don't know if we fully understand it. It's this word called mercy. Let's put it bluntly. You can only really be merciful to someone if they deserve the punishment that you're willing to give. You can't actually be merciful to someone that doesn't deserve a punishment. That's not mercy. Mercy is they are deserving of everything and we can say more. Or a judge would say, you know, we, we, this person has every right that the law should throw the full book at this person. But be willing to say, I won't do that, is what we actually call mercy. I wonder if any of us would see the people that maybe have hurt us the most, that we might not like to say the word hate, but we do. What would happen if they received mercy? We might say amen now. But if someone has violated you or torn something away from you, and there was supposed to be a day of justice where it was knocking and they were going to get it. Finally, and you're there rubbing your hands. Justice is about to be served and they were given mercy. How would you feel? 
Turn to Jonah 4. Think. Go to Jonah 4, verses 2. Now, a lot of people know the story of Jonah. And I think this is a very interesting verse here. Jonah 4, 2. Actually, I start from 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I dropped you in the middle of a story. There was a very wicked city, ancient wicked city, called Nineveh. Wicked. If, if, if we could come up with the most terrible, terrifying city, it's this city. Now, God told a man named Jonah to go preach there and tell them one word, repent. You need to change your way. And you know what he did? He actually wanted to go to Spain, which is the opposite way. And I'm going to fast forward the story. If you really want to know what that story is, you can read it in the book of Jonah. But it lands us in this city that is wicked and Jonah preaches it and they all repent. This is what he's saying after preaching that seeing these wicked people that deserve the full wrath, Sodom and Gomorrah wrath on them. But they repented. He said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, which is Spain. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do we fully understand when God said that he is compassionate and gracious? It's not just for the little sins. It's for the worst, too. When we talk about compassion and graciousness, I want us to think bigger than the way we think. For a long time, until I really understood who God is, you can actually get trapped in this rhythm 
of thinking that any sin can actually take you out of the palm of God's hand. You can actually get tricked into thinking that. Somewhere down the line, you actually start thinking it's your behavior that justifies you. It's so quick because you start off thinking, thank you, God, for this grace. And then eventually you hear this little voice start telling you. If you keep doing that, I don't know if God will forgive you. If you keep struggling with that. This might be the last time. And I think that thought comes to our minds is because we're thinking God is like us. All of us have a last time. I don't care who you is. All of us have a last time. There's eventually going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And we're going to say we're done. But how many of us are glad that the God that we serve is not like us? There's no straw that would break his back. If you are willing to come to him and say that heavy word that only the humble can hold, help. He is faithful and just, compassionate and gracious to forgive. Let's go to that next word here. Slow to anger and loving kindness and truth. Slow to anger. I like my translation, but I think the older translations, like the New King James says it best, this word, long-suffering. I, I can be a pretty impatient person. I like things done quick. I guess it's the millennial in me, I guess. But I think all of us like that. There. This has got to be done now. I'm not willing to wait. Let's go, let's go, let's go. There's like an internal tempo that we enjoy. And when others don't move at that tempo, it actually frustrates us. Again, God is not partly slow to anger. He's wholly W.H. Hole, Lee, slow to anger. So let's go to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, 8. says, have you not heard? You have not known. Even from long ago, your ear has not been open because I knew that you would deal very treacherously and you and you have been called a rebel from birth 
For the sake of my name, I will delay my wrath. And for my praise, I will restrain it for you. And sorry, in order not to cut you off. Restrain my wrath. I want you to think in your own walk with Jesus or pre-walk with Jesus. When you, I would say you were in the thick of your deception. When you were willing to be right by any means necessary. Living in your deception, not thinking about God. What God is saying here, he was willing to delay his wrath to give you a chance to say help. I don't think you guys are getting it. The scripture makes it so clear That we hate God. We don't ignore God. We don't not think about God. We actually hate him. We don't like his way and everything about God. We actually just prefer to do ourselves. And while we were in that place, shaking our fists to God, he's saying this. I'm willing to withhold my wrath. I'm not a parent yet, but I'm sure those with parents, those that are parents have understood this. I have read that it's always good to deal with when issues come up with children immediately. Something happens, you don't want to just, let's not think about it. You would want to deal with it. I'm thinking about the kind of thoughtfulness that's so much deeper than ours. That for his glory, that when God says he's going to finally discipline you, there's no more chances. It's death. God's final wrath. Is death. That's it. No more chances. He's willing, even though we deserve it, to withhold it for his glory just until the time you're ready to say help. And that rebellious person, some of us might be a year, some of us might be 50. But he's willing to withhold it until the time you say help. And all that time of rebellion, he's willing to forgive. Last week, I said that this Bible is just not human. We couldn't have written this. I'm telling you, if this was human invented, there would have been a line cut off. 100%. Some people are excluded. They don't get the graciousness. They don't get the mercy, period. I know if I wrote it, it probably would have been that. But that's just the truth. On some sort of level, God is so vastly slow to anger. 
He's willing to suffer with us long. Loving kindness and truth. You can go back to Ephesians. Sorry, Ephesians. Um, Exodus 34. I'll talk this out. Loving kindness and truth. Again, I'm going to say this again. God is not made of parts. When he says he's something, it's measured in the scope of who he is. In case you haven't noticed, God cannot be measured. So when he says he is compassionate, you can't measure it. Gracious, you can't measure it. Slow to anger, you can't measure it. Loving kindness and truth. But there's something interesting before it. It says abounding. Abounding. That word abounding, it's so much more than just more. In our, if you just look it up in Webster's Dictionary, it's going to say more, more than. Abounding. Abounding is almost this, if we were to say more and measure the distance of what more is, it would be eternal. I'm trying to get you to grasp this picture. Again, the question, what is the scripture primarily trying to teach us? This is what we have to believe about God. We are tempted to think like he's like us. So we're going to put limits. I'm trying to get you to take the limits off. Loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness here is just goodness. God's goodness is abounding in such a way it's eternal. And truth here specifically, it gives us a sense of reliability. So God's goodness and reliability is eternally abounding. I don't know, maybe there's some people that struggle with this, but maybe they struggle with compliments. When someone says, oh, you look great today, you're like, eh, me? Ah. No. You struggle with compliments. Uh, compliments. And there's a point where someone might be complimenting you so much, you take it as flattery. Okay, I'm not that good. Come on. Stop it already. We're good. Thank you. I got the message. And the reason we can even say that, because on, on some level we know, no human being can actually compliment that much and it be totally 100% from a pure place. You know why? Because it's a human saying it. No human being has 100% pure motives. You can think it's pure, but most times, if you let the scripture dig deep enough, it's not. So, if God is that pure, in the purest sense, there's no darkness in him at all. And he would so much lavish us with goodness. 
when we don't deserve it. And be so reliable when we don't deserve it. And when we think of what we can actually give God, and there's nothing we can give that he needs, you can only come to the conclusion he's doing it because he wants to. A step back again. This person that is in rebellion, shaking his fists at God, God is willing to suffer with him for a long time until the moment that person is ready to say, I'm in debt. I need help. And he's willing to give that person compassion, mercy and graciousness. And not just give him that, but willing to lavish on top of that goodness and an extreme level of reliability. The scriptures teach us this is who God is. It's kind of sounding a bit unbelievable, ain't it? If you're being for real, for real, like let's not be religious here. What human being do we know that's like this? I don't know any. If you do introduce me, please. We don't know anybody. And what's crazy is we're not like that. But on some level, there's this being that the scriptures speak of. That is like this. Forgiveness. Hmm. Forgiveness. I think this is something very difficult for us because of all the aforementioned things I talked about. But when we are hurt, boy, when someone hits that nerve, I'm talking about that nerve. Everyone has a that nerve. Let's be for real here. Everyone has a that nerve. When that thing is hit, and what's crazy is the people that know us most hit that that thing hardest. They don't just like tap that button. They're like, when they hit that button, that word forgiveness is difficult. Let's go to first John. Going to New Testament now. First John one. I quoted a bit earlier. First John one verses nine. If we confess our sins, help. He is faithful and righteous. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us abounding. This scripture is claiming something huge. Because us, 
When someone, some, when someone does something really bad to us, the best of us would forgive. But guess what? They don't have the same standing with us anymore. We have to kind of work back up to that. You got to prove that you're worthy of that kind of trust. That's how we operate. Realistically, it's just a mechanism to protect ourselves from being hurt again. But God does not just do that. He doesn't do that. He said that he's going to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. That's the abounding. From all unrighteousness. You see, God doesn't just forgive and say, all right, you're good. But you got to work your way back into my good graces. You got to work your way up back to ground zero. Where the abounding comes from in this goodness, in this reliability, is the fact that he's willing to give so much on top of that forgiveness. You're not, sta- you're not starting at ground zero with God. When God forgives you, you start and stay at 100. You start and stay at perfect. You start and stay like you've never sinned before. There's three words. Go back to Exodus. You should just have your finger in it. There's three words here that I want to talk through. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, I think sin is probably the most popular one that we know. It's kind of like the umbrella word. But there's a reason why the biblical writers use these three things. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. They're different. I know we tend to just group them. Or when you're reading, you're just like, okay, iniquity, something bad. Transgression, is, it's something bad. Sin, that's the one I know. But I want to talk through this. Iniquity. And while I'm talking through this, think of the all unrighteousness. When the Bible writers talk about iniquity, they're talking about this crooked way of living. Some Bible writers might use the word perverse. And I think we often think about it in a sexual way, which we can say yes, but it's actually much grander than that. It's a crooked, disjointed, distorted way of living that creates distorted and disjointed situations. Is everybody understanding? Iniquity is not just a bad choice. When the Bible writers use the word iniquity, it's for crooked choices and crooked situations. So, someone can make a choice that is crooked, meaning not the correct way to do something. And then because of that crooked choice, it creates a crooked situation. The next thing here is transgression. 
transgression here is actually a violation of trust. So if myself and my brother, sorry, let me put it this way. The idea is if my brother's house and I go and I steal a pot of his, I have transgressed my brother. You can say, well, didn't you just sin against your brother? Well, yeah. But there's an idea that the Bible writers are trying to get across. When I transgress my brother, I have broken his trust. Also with transgression is not just with people you know. Because every single human being is made in the image of God. There's a level of trust that each and every one of us have with each other, even if you're strangers, whether you know it or not. Some people might call it common decency, common ethics. But the reality is there is an underlying trust that every one of us have with people, even if they are someone that we do not know. If we do something to them or they do something to us, we have transgressed. We have broken the underlying trust. Groups of people can actually transgress too. When governments decide to take power into their own hands and misuse the trust, violate the trust of its people, you can read throughout the scriptures, groups can transgress. Lastly, we talked a bit about it last week, is the overarching one, sin. But sin, again, it's a, it's a, it's a junk word that we kind of throw a lot of bad things in. But the overarching message is that it's meaning that it's error. It's, there was something that was supposed to be achieved, that was supposed to be hit. There was a target that you were supposed to bullseye, but you missed You've erred. You've sinned. But the Bible writers don't just say that. But sin is this deep-rooted corruption of our desires and urges to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. I think one of the stories that sets the tone of that in scripture is the infamous story of Cain and Abel. Both of them offering sacrifices. God prefers one sacrifice to the other. Cain gets angry. What does God say? Paraphrasing. You can read it if you want exact words. He says, if you do good, wouldn't you be accepted? And what's the next sentence? Sin is crouching at the door. It's like this internal dangerous animal. It wants to devour, but you must master it. What happens next? He didn't. This inward, deep corruption 
that Cain experienced is a bigger deal than I think sometimes we talk about. It's a bigger deal than how we talk about it. That's what I'm trying to say. When we say sin, we're just like, oh, it's sin. God hates sin. Sin is the deepest corruption in the human genome. Deepest. And every human being has that creature that is laying in wait in every decision that we make. It's waiting for every decision that you make because on some sort of level it has to be made at the expense of somebody. How do we know? We're all selfish on some sort of level. We all want something at some sort of level. And that sin is willing to manipulate that desire that you're willing to want to get it by any means necessary. Every human being has it. That's why a lot of times this, the Bible talks about it in a way like a sickness that people are born with. You come out the womb with it. David talks about him being shaped in his mother's womb in this corruption. That even when he was born, he had this crouching creature flowing through every vein in his body. And I think with that picture, I want you to go to the next verse here. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. I want to be clear here. Because a lot of times. Yeah, I'm not going to pull any punches. And a lot of times I think we fall into this idea of determinism. Because I'm a Pisces, I'm like this. Because I'm Spanish, I have a hot blood temper. Because my dad did this to me and he was like this, that's just how I am. Determinism. We actually blame that crouching tiger, that crouching creature that sometimes manifests itself in the same way that it manifested in our parents, on our parents. Here's the thing. That's not what this scripture is saying. I'm going to say something else. Us as Christians, we've bought into that idea. You know why? We say this phrase, generational curses. It's not a thing. Do you know why? I'll prove it here. 
Go to Exodus 20. This was the first time God was revealing himself before Moses spazzed out and broke the the tablets. Go to verse 5 and 6. You shall not worship them or serve them, idols, other gods, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation. Sorry, third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That just blows up generational curses. Do you know why? Every generation has a choice to make. Yes, crooked decisions create crooked situations. Yes, parents can jack it up for their kids. But guess what? God has made it so every person has to make a choice. Are you going to love and obey God or hate him? Every generation has that. You can see it literally in Genesis. Adam and Eve had a choice. Obedience or death. They chose death. The second generation had the same choice. Cain could have been like, well, look at my mama. My mama made that choice. Of course it would just be me. But that's not what God said. He said, you got a creature too. Yes, you were born out of the garden. Yes, you were born into a jacked up situation. But guess what? On some sort of level, on some sort of level, you really got to understand that when it comes to your sickness, your disease, you have to rule it. I'm going to finish here with Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18. And I'm just going to read it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. What the parents did jacks it up for the kids and they're paying for it. 